Well, again, I want to thank all of you for coming today, and let's just talk about the uh, the elephant proverbial in the room, that this is a day and a conference set aside about purity, specifically sexual purity. And um, all of us showed up, which I, I think is an admission, and, and I want to welcome that admission. I'm here not just as a teacher or a pastor, I'm here to learn as well. Um, so I want to begin by just saying the, the men who are going to be talking to you today, all of us are coming from a position of identification, not exclusion. Uh, you're, you're not going to hear anyone talk to you today who is, uh, uh, has now crossed the finish line of all temptation and purity, and we've got it figured out. And if you'll listen to us, you can, you can join us on this side of the finish line. So just full disclosure, I... Uh, I am a man who is yet to be fully sanctified in this area and working on it, not, not every day, but maybe, um, maybe hourly and thinking rightly about this issue. So I want to commend you for coming today. Um, I think it's a, a loud pronouncement of your humility, your godliness, your teachability, and uh, we're all in this together. What I want to talk about today is, uh, if you want a little title for this session, it's Uncommon Hope for a Common Struggle. Uncommon Hope for a Common Struggle. So let me just break the vase at the very beginning, can I? Uh, It's easy to talk euphemistically about these things. It's easy to talk in generalities about these things. It's easy to kind of imply what we're talking about rather than to tell you what we're talking about. We're talking about what you do and what you think regarding sexuality and sexual desires. We're going to be talking about what you watch and what you want regarding sexual desire. We're going to be talking about looking at a woman and having sexual desires for her in a way that should only be expressed in the marriage bed or thinking about another man, I have to say that, in a sexual way. That should only be expressed with a woman in the marriage bed, same-sex attraction. We're talking about what it means to view pornography. What pornography means. We have slipped so far in our justification and understanding of of pornography. Look up in the dictionary. Pornography is the display of sexual acts or nudity. And somehow we've, we've decided that if, the, if there's an internet site that's labeled pornography, that's pornography, but a PG-13 that shows sexual acts or nudity is not pornography. Man, that's pornography. It's the definition of pornography. And so to begin thinking about the justifications that we have for viewing things that God sent his son to die for and things that we would say are, are wrong for us to do is a level of hypocrisy we want to deal with. We're talking about watching movies that depict sex, acts, and sexuality wrongly. We're talking about actually touching a woman who's not your wife in a sexual way, and let me say it, touching a man in a way that's sexual that's not your wife. We're talking about the secret sin of masturbation. Now, let me just tell you a funny story. You have to once you say that word because everyone locks up when you say the word. 
I was in a, uh, a van full of high school guys going to a conference many, many years ago in another state. And um, so the guys were asking me, you know, about sexual purity. And, and it was obvious what they were asking me about. And, uh, and you know, I, I was kind of listening and playing along. And so finally, I just said, so you guys are asking about the M word, right? Dead silence in the van. And then this one guy says, completely innocent and completely sincere. He, he says, I, I, what, are you talking about like Mesopotamia? <laughs> no, we're not talking about Mesopotamia. <laughs> we're talking about developing greater passion for purity than a passion for sin. That's the goal. Listen, the morality crisis is more than internet pornography. It lays traps everywhere. It's remarkable to see the progression of temptation, how Satan has so numbed us to these temptations. When I, when I grew up, the idea of looking at pornography was going down the street with, uh, and finding a friend who had a magazine that was under his mattress, and that's the way you looked at pornography. It's a little different today, isn't it? It's accessible. It's affordable and it's anonymous. And because of those, you can, you can view um, what you should not view on a handheld device, tablet or a phone, computer. And it seems anonymous. By the way, I don't want to get too far into this, but there's enough computer guys here to tell you that, uh, and you younger guys need to know this, everything you ever look at is recorded somewhere forever. And before you say, oh yeah, the cash and you can't really, no, no. That may be true on the computer. It's recorded in heaven. God knows, God sees. God cares, God can forgive, but there are consequences for these things. Oh goodness, how I wish, how I wish there was a delete button for our brain. I have seen things over the course of my life that if I give my mind one inch, one centimeter of, of leash, it can go there and review those images without any effort. They're all there. It's impossible to watch sporting events without being accosted by commercials or cheerleaders being shown on the, on the television. It's everywhere. How can a Young or old man keep his way pure? It's not by just saying no. There's, there's more to it than that. Someone said, uh, I heard this when I was a, a younger man, said, look, there's two kinds of, of men. There's dirty old men and there's dirty young men. And what that talks about is where we're gonna be looking at in this first session, which is the commonality of this temptation. Sexual sin, guys, is not the playground that Hugh Hefner predicted it to be. It's a battlefield on which lives are destroyed in time and space and some for all eternity. I, I tell you this not to make you feel better, but in some senses to make us feel a little worse. Talking to guys about sexual purity is probably, um, not probably, it's the number one thing I've talked to men, young men and old men about 
in the last 40 years of ministry, and the second's not even close. But it's always good to be able to talk to guys about this temptation, this, this sin. If you don't talk about it, you won't seek the remedies that God has given us for it. And God's word has remedies. Listen, the Bible is not silent about sex. The Bible is not silent about sexuality. The Bible doesn't blush about these things. And we could go a lot of places to see the cause and the cure for immorality. Um, we could go to 2 Samuel 11. Okay, sword drill. What's 2 Samuel 11? David and Bathsheba. And we could have a whole session on that. Um, I heard a great sermon one time called David and the Internet, in which he used that as a parallel for all the mistakes he made that guys make in, in looking at the Internet. He looked, he had a second look, he acted, a lot, a lot of things, but this is where David saw a woman and should have turned his, his eyes away and instead pursued from his thought life to the actual committing of sin. We could look, and some of these passages will come back today, we could look at uh, Ecclesiastes chapter two. Solomon had a thousand women in his life and was not satisfied. Boy, that's instructive. For those of us who are married and you may think, oh, she's better, she, uh, she looks better, she's, and, and that would be better than my wife. Solomon had a thousand chances to prove that right and it was wrong. You go to Matthew 5, which you're going to hear about later. Radical amputation, taking radical steps to deal with sexual sin, mentally and executed. 1 Thessalonians 4, you'll hear about also. God is the avenger of those who we mistreat sexually, either mentally or in reality. All of these, many more passages inform the issue of sexual purity. But I want us to start, if you have your Bibles, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to start the day by concluding something that Paul concluded, and I think wants us to conclude with him. And he explains to us our title, that there is uncommon hope for a common struggle. Now, I think that's every struggle that's common, as we'll see, but specifically sexual temptation and sexual sin. First Corinthians chapter 10, I'm going to read verses 10, excuse me, 12 through 14. Paul says, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands... Be careful, take heed, take note that he does not fall because no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is, say it with me, faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you were able but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I want to start today, if, if you want 
to take notes, you can, but if not, just listen. Two foundations for the day, just two simple foundations for our study, for our day. The first is you're not alone, meaning no temptation is unique. And the second is God is always faithful, meaning no temptation is supreme. So we'll go through those more deliberately here now in our exposition. Two foundations for the day. Number one, you're not alone, meaning no temptation is unique. He begins in verse 12, therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. Guys, the fact that you're here means that you're not trying to stand. It always makes me nervous when a guy thinks, oh, I've got that wired, I've got that covered, I'm not gonna, I, 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 I'm not gonna fall like that. I've, I've conquered that, that battle, that sin. Let him who thinks he stands take heed so that he does not fall. I don't think I need to tell you or ask you not to be overly confident about this, or, or frankly, I don't think any of you would be here. It's a, it's a great admission that we need God's grace in this. And then he follows up on that immediately with the statement, no temptation Stop right there. The, the word temptation is an interesting word. It functions in the Greek in two ways. It's a, it can mean, you can translate it trial and you can translate it temptation. And there's a whole lot of um, theology in that definition. Every temptation is a trial and every trial can be tempting for us to distrust God, to make bad decisions, to, to commit sin. But trials can become temptations and our a trial that we all live with as men is how we think about sexuality in a proper way. No temptation, which can be a trial that can become tempting you to sin, has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. Crazy insight there. Your sexual temptation and mine is not different from each other. It's not unique. Let me say it this way. Your temptation for sexual sin in thought or action is no stronger than anyone else's. It's not unique. Oh, I remember talking to a dear friend who just said, Rick, I don't think you understand. This is something I think about all the time. It's something that, that is a curse in my life. Um, I, it's rare that 10 minutes in the day don't go by that I don't think of, of, a, of, a, of sexually tempting thought. I, I am... I am uniquely afflicted with this, this temptation. And the answer is no, 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 you're not. You can feed it, you can turn up the volume on it, but it's not unique. I think Satan would love for each of you to think that your struggle with sexual temptation is different than or worse than others so that you'll not pursue help and the help that God provides for victory over such temptations. Guys, it's, it's, it's not unique. It goes back to David, obviously. It goes back to Abraham. Pharaoh and Abraham's wife. I mean, it, this, is, this is not unique. It's not new. Um, God didn't wake up in 2022, elbow the angels and say, oh, have you seen pornography? Do you, do you see what's happening to the men down there? This is an age 
old temptation and it's common to all men. Let that encourage you that you're not alone, but let that also encourage you as we'll see next is that the same remedy that has always existed exists today. So first of all, number one, you're not alone. No temptation is unique. Secondly, God is always faithful, which means that no temptation is supreme. Look at that phrase. And God is faithful. Wow, if you underline things in your Bible, that's a, that's a candidate. God is faithful. I have four subpoints under this for my own heart. First of all, we find out God is faithful to limit your temptations. This seems almost improbable, but God is faithful to limit your temptations. God is faithful. Who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able? That is incredible, uncommonly known hope. It's not too much. Said this, let me say it this way. There is always an off-ramp when you're driving towards sin. Always an off-ramp. Um, I mean, I remember we were in Detroit. We hadn't lived there long. Um, Kim and I were first married. I was a youth pastor in Detroit. And um, we were just getting to know the freeways. And people had warned us about this one place, I think it was on 696, where if you miss an exit, it's like, 12 miles to the next one. Um, and um, so be careful on this road because I think there was kind of like Shawnee Mission Park. There was a park there that you had to kind of drive past and there was no off ramps. And uh, sure enough, we were on that road and I uh, I'd gone too far, needed to turn around and we missed that last off ramp and realized that it, it was gonna be a half hour to get turned around. We'd been warned about it. We talked about it. And my sweet wife said, honey, when she starts by the word honey, there's two ways that she says that. One's really nice. And the other is I, I better buckle up. And this was a, I, I better buckle up moment. Honey, you remember when so-and-so told us about this place on the freeway? And I just want to say, no, I didn't remember that at all. And I said, well, yeah, I do. She says, yeah, that's going to cost us. And then this great question, isn't it? No, it's not going to cost us. <laughs> Sin's not like that. There is always, always, instantly, you can look to the right and there's an off-ramp. You can get off at any point. God provides a way of escape. And it's not if you pass it that you can't find it again. Or you got to wait till 12 miles till the next off-ramp. At every single moment in the temptation process, there's an off-ramp immediately to your right. You can take it. You don't have to sin. You don't get to the point of no return. That's good news. He's faithful to limit our temptations. He's not gonna allow us to be tempted beyond what we're able. In other words, nothing, 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 no temptation is too strong. He limits it. We can never sin, whether it's sexually in mind or in deed, and then say, well, that was just too much. No, 
God has promised not to allow us to be tempted beyond what we're able to withstand. And then secondly, God is faithful to provide a way of escape. That's the off-ramp. He's faithful to provide the way of escape. God is faithful to limit your temptations and God is faithful to provide a way of escape. But with the temptation, he will provide the way of escape also. That's, that one phrase has helped me so much in my, uh, my fight against sexual sin and forced sexual purity is to remember in the moment of temptation, there's a way of escape. Instead of looking toward the temptation, am I looking for the off-ramp? God's power can and will always enable you in the trial of temptation not to sin if you'll find it, if you'll look for it. The key, this is from the very beginning, let me encourage you. The key is looking for that off-ramp and taking it. Are you ever looking for the way of escape or are you looking for the way of pleasure and to indulge your lusts? It may be as simple as remembering God in the moment of temptation. I was taught a long time ago by a friend who has helped me as a young man <clears throat> on these issues. When He said, have the courage to pray in the moment of temptation. Kind of sounds really pragmatic, but it's really hard to sin in the throne room. <laughs> if you're being tempted and you instantly start praying and you're, you're in the throne room before the God of the universe, God Almighty, it's really hard to sin like that. But are you courageous enough? Are you willing enough? Are you willing to set aside your sin enough to pray in that moment? That might be one of the clearest off-ramps in every temptation. You guys know this. I've, I've read this to you before, but it's worth repeating. A.W. Tozer says this. Every phrase is just so good. He says, quote, sin is always an act of wrong judgment. To commit a sin, a man must for the moment believe that things are different from what they really are. He must confound values. He must see the moral universe out of focus. He must accept a lie as truth and see the truth as a lie. He must ignore the signs on the highway and drive with his eyes shut. He must act as if he had no soul and was not accountable for his moral choices. And then that famous paragraph, sin is never a thing to be proud of. No act is wise that ignores remote consequences and as sin and sin always does. Sin sees only today or at most tomorrow, never the day after tomorrow, next month or next year. Death and judgment are pushed aside as if they did not exist. And the sinner in the moment of sin becomes for the time a practical atheist who by his act denies not only the existence of God, but the concept of life after death, end quote. So in the moment of sin, in the moment of temptation, we choose to drive past the off-ramp in our mind and, and stay on the pathway to sin. We may say we believe in God, but we're trying to act as if he doesn't exist. A third subpoint: God is faithful to empower sure victory. He's faithful to empower sure victory. 
He says, so that you will be able to endure it. Isn't that hopeful? There's a promise. He's provided the off-ramp. He's given us this faithfulness and his power so that we can endure it. All temptation is vulnerable to God's faithful enabling. And then fourth, fourth sub point is in verse 14. It seems like it comes out of nowhere. Letter D, God is faithful to chart a strategy. This is so good. So unexpected. God is faithful to start to chart a strategy. He says in verse 14, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Doesn't that seem like a weird thing to put at the end of that temptation? Little uh, admonition, flee idolatry. Why does he say that? Think about this. All sin, every form of sin, mental and physical, enacted and thought about, all sin is a form of idolatry. It means we're giving our worth-ship We're saying that sin is worth more than God, which is making the sin an idol instead of God. What is idolatry? Really simple. Idolatry is anything that you'll sin in order to get or do. Idolatry is anything you'll sin if you don't get it and if you don't get to do it. That's idolatry. That's why it says flee idolatry, run from it. It's the Joseph principle. Potiphar's wife grabbed him and he ran So let me just set a course for the day, okay? Let me first say that we're all sitting here as guilty sinners, if not in deed, certainly in mind. And God, God is a God of grace and forgiveness. I don't care what you've thought or what you've done. You have not outsinned God's forgiveness and God's grace. Grace Grace, grace that is greater than how much? All our sin. Do you believe that? But you need to keep that thought in tandem with this. God is deadly serious about repentance. He is forgiving and gracious and he is also serious. So you're gonna hear today of God's grace and God's severity. You're gonna hear today of God's forgiveness as well as his vengeance. You're gonna hear of his understanding of your struggle as well as his intolerance of it. And our goal is that you walk away this afternoon with a hefty degree of conviction and encouragement. So if you listen, and if you listen well, we should know at the end of the day, we're gonna leave fearful and hopeful. Fearful of the seriousness of this sin and hopeful that there's a way out of it. Father, give us the grace to know both your seriousness and your sobriety, balanced with your forgiveness and your mercy and grace. Teach us, instruct us, and change us. In Jesus' name, amen.